This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. It is perfectly legitimate to say we need to do more to stand up to Iran and, if necessary, sacrifice blood and treasure to do so. But please, let's do it knowing what we're getting into because there's not a cheap and easy way of doing it. What are the Iranian goals in the region? What are they after? And if we've learned nothing from the Middle East in recent years is that things can get worse. New things can happen. Is a second Arab Spring there possible? I think you'd be crazy to exclude it. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Phil Gordon is a leading expert in international relations. He and I spent many hours together in the Situation Room when he was Special Assistant to the President and White House Coordinator for the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf region. He is also an expert on Europe and Eurasia. He is the author of 10 books, and he is currently a Senior Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. I recently had the chance to sit down with Phil to try to put some of the myriad Middle East-related issues into context. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morrell. Phil, welcome. It's great to have you here. Uh, It's great to be on. Thanks. So lots going on in the Middle East, from the military defeat of ISIS um, around the corner to a war that goes on and on in Yemen, from a royal purge in Saudi Arabia to a crisis in Lebanese politics, a dispute between Saudi Arabia and UAE on the one hand and Qatar on the other, and all of that's just the tip of the iceberg. So there's a lot going on here. And I want to ask you about all of that, but maybe the best place to start is to ask you why Americans should care about the Middle East. 
Why does this matter so much to the United States? Uh, no, that's a good place to start, Michael, because I think a lot of Americans fail to appreciate why it does matter to us. There's a tendency and a desire in some quarters to just wash our hands with it, right? It's, it's too hard. It doesn't matter. We've got more important things to focus on. But I actually think that's wrong. In fact, if you think about the big national security challenges and risks that we face as Americans, they all emanate in one way or another from the Middle East. Uh, nuclear proliferation. Spend a lot of time on the Iran nuclear deal, right? If Iran gets a nuclear weapon, you can be sure that other countries in the region will want or get a nuclear weapon. And do Americans want to live in a world where this unstable region has numerous nuclear weapons? And would states? also send a signal to other countries in other parts of the world that this is an okay thing. Uh, it totally would. I mean, that's one of the biggest deals about Iran. It's not just that Iran getting a weapon would be a terrible thing in and of itself. But if we throw in the towel on that one, who's going to believe we're going to care enough to stop the next one, right? especially if it's like one of our allies. If Saudi Arabia says, well, they got it, uh, we want it, is it credible that we would say, no, we're going to do everything possible to stop the Saudis when we didn't stop Iran? So it has repercussions all over the world. So we should care about that. Uh, then you have all of the conflicts going on, which if you take Syria alone has killed hundreds of thousands of people, which I think Americans should care about, you know, just in terms of human life. But even if you want to just take a cold realist view of it, it's not just the deaths, but the refugees, which are destabilizing neighbors, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, where you, know, you have a million refugees, the quarter of the population, Iraq, which we're trying to help fight ISIS being sapped by dealing with uh, refugees, refugees in Europe, right? Having a huge political effect. Refugees there. in Europe, indeed. Even if you don't care about the Middle East, if you think we have a strategic uh, relationship or stake in Europe, Europe's politics are being destabilized. Far-right movements, anti-immigration movements solidarity among EU members, all being strained by you know, a million refugees turning up and there could be more. I think it had a, a real impact on the Brexit debate. And I think it had an impact even in our own politics. So again, you can't ignore and just hope that it stays there. And then on top of that, those refugees and the conflicts going on are, are leading to more radicalization and extremism. So if you care about terrorist attacks, whether in London or Paris or Brussels or in the United States, well, partly that is also deriving from the troubles uh, in this region. And then lastly, and there's probably more, but uh, I think one has to mention energy as well, because that... This is a perception, right, that it's less important. There is that perception, perception. And I think that perception is wrong. In fact, you, you and I served an administration that famously announced a pivot to other parts of the world. And some people argued for that pivot on the basis that well, we used to only care about the Middle East because yeah. of oil. Wrong, wrong word, wasn't it? It was, it, it, yeah, it was, it was a bad word. word. Yeah. But even the concept, while obviously rightly acknowledging East Asia's importance, the notion that we don't need to care about the Middle East anymore because we're quote unquote energy independent, I think misses the point that even if we directly as the United States are, oil is a fungible good. If our European allies need it and the Indians need it and the South Koreans need it, then we have to care about that too. And the oil price as well. If there's instability in the Middle East, then the price of oil goes up here as much as elsewhere. So, you know, those are just some of the reasons why I don't think we have the luxury of just saying, not our problem, let's move on. You know, one of the things, Phil, that I think multiple administrations have, have failed to do is to make clear to the American people what you just said. So we all understood what you just said in the sit room, right? And I think the folks inside Washington and the think tank circle, right, they, they all get that. But we haven't talked to the guy in Akron or the guy in Pittsburgh, right, St. Louis, about what you just said. Totally. And I think that was part of President Trump's appeal with a strong isolationist bent. I think he once or twice said if we had just walked away from the region 30 years ago, uh, it would be in better shape. And I think that resonates with a lot of Americans. And again, it's very tempting because, look, these are issues 
are so hard. And to say we have interest there doesn't imply that you know, there are easy fixes or, or solutions to them. But it does, I think, remind us that we do have to make the case because I think people take for granted the fact that you know, while the region has enormous troubles, it could actually be worse. It's one of the things, I mean, if you look at it over the past several years, with each passing year, it actually does get worse. And there's, a, a, sadly, a lot more scope for it to deteriorate even further. That's a great transition to actually go through the issues here. And if it makes sense to you, I'd like to break this down into three pieces. Governance, extremism, and the Iran-Saudi dynamic. Probably a thousand ways you can cut this down, yeah. right? That's one way. And certainly understanding that all of these things are interrelated, right? Yeah. But on governance, maybe the place to start is Saudi politics, right? Mm-hmm. The purging of opponents of the crown prince, the arrest of some senior princes, the arrests of hundreds of uh, Saudi businessmen, his reform program, the change he's trying to bring socially and politically. What's going on there? Uh, this is a huge deal. What is going on, there are a lot of things going on, but one thing clearly that is going on is the crown prince is seeking to consolidate power as he gets ready to possibly be the king of Saudi Arabia for many decades to come. He's 32 years old. Now, it's not as if there were obvious challenges to his power. When his father promoted him from deputy crown prince to crown prince, he's the next king of Saudi Arabia. But you can never be too sure in the Middle East, I suppose, is the thinking. And he was already the defense minister when he was deputy crown prince. And then when he was promoted to be crown prince, he replaced the interior minister. uh, So he got in charge of that piece of the security services. And then last weekend, when he got rid of Prince Miteb, who was the head of the National Guard, he put it all under himself or his people. So I think, again, it's erring on the side of, you know, this is going to be a different kind of transition in Saudi Arabia, as you know well. For decades, the transition was from brother to brother in a sort of consensual way of, all, of the sons of the founder of the kingdom. Well, they ran out of brothers on that line and had to try something new. And, you know, there's no constitution that adjudicates these things. So you're going to a new generation, and it's just not as obvious. And so I think that reinforces the notion that he wants to make sure that this goes smoothly. So what he wants to do in the kingdom, is that, and and, and how he's doing it at the moment, is that good for Saudi stability or bad for Saudi stability? The goal, I think, is certainly uh, laudable and one we should, we have an interest in supporting. I think we have an interest in him succeeding. There are enormous risks, and I have to say I worried over, you know, over the past 10 days or so about the risk of overreach. The goal, I think, is right because, look, let's face it, Saudi Arabia needs to reform and needs to be transformed. I mean, that's one of the things where you uh, – the fact that he is young gives him a different perspective. Maybe a 75-year-old could just say, look, oil prices are low, the budget deficit's high, but we'll, we'll muddle along and deal we'll with it. We'll muddle along until it's $90 a barrel again, right? uh, which, is not, which is not going to happen. Which the young crown prince knows is not going to happen. So that's his basis. That's new, uh, high oil prices aren't going to save us. We're running a budget deficit of you know, up to $100 billion a year. We've got 75% of the population, which is under 30 years old. A lot of them are susceptible to extremism if they don't get jobs opportunity. So he has a plan to modernize the kingdom, diversify the economy, get it away from oil, bring women to the workforce, educate young people. All of that is good and necessary stuff that I think we have an interest in. And frankly, if, if there wasn't a young reformer doing that, we would be wishing one would come along. The risk, though, is can you do it, can you do it, period, but also can you do it so quickly 
and taking on so many things at once. We haven't even talked about the foreign policy pieces of it yet, but you know, marginalizing the conservative clerics and taking on other princes and arresting business leaders, which risk scaring off foreign investment, while you're fighting a war in Yemen, challenging Iran. This is all it's risky a lot and on the costly. Plate. It's a an enormous amount of it. So somebody said to me yesterday, smart guy said to me, you know, will he end up being the Lee Kuan Yew of the Middle East or the Mikhail Gorbachev of the Middle East? Right. It's a really, it's a really interesting way to look at it. At how's this going to turn out? Uh, can I come back in 15 years and answer <laughs> and, that question on sure. the podcast? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that is kind of the right way to think about it. And we do know that there aren't too many Lee Kuan Yews around in international relations. You have to get lucky. At the same time, like I said, we need him to succeed. And there is actually a path forward. Uh, you know, in the Middle East, and, and I'm sure we'll feel this as we go through your list of issues, there aren't a whole lot of them where you conclude and you say, all right, I see that getting better. Yeah, the path to the Middle East, peace, Syria. This one, you can see a path where he gradually you know, reforms the economy, provides opportunity to young people, marginalizes the, the extremists. It is interesting to think, right, that in our time, right, if somebody had said to us, we have a leader of Saudi Arabia who's doing, allowing women to drive, right, who's, who's taking the authority away from the religious police, who wants to modernize the economy, diversify it, right, we'd say fantastic. We'd say fantastic. If instead the leader was another 80-year-old, we would be talking right now, you would be saying, you know, is there anyone else on the horizon, any prospect for youth and reform? And we'd be very frustrated if there wasn't. So that's why I think we do have a stake in his success, but we also have a you know legitimate role to play and try to steer him in the right direction so that it doesn't all go off the rails. If we move kind of um, south southwest here, there's another really important country in the region, which is Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, huge population, the center of intellectual Islam. Yeah. What's your assessment of the performance of the Sisi government there? the reforms that need to be done, your concerns going forward? So first of all, it is a hugely important country with a a big and growing population. I think it's like 95 million, probably 100 million by the end of this podcast. Um, (laughs) uh, And I've heard people in the region say that Egypt is too big to fail, but also too big to save because of that population that I just mentioned. And goodness knows we've been trying and we spent a lot of time on, you know, Egypt economic reform and how we could help. And and it's very frustrating. It's a lot of money. They need a lot of money. And that's the thing. Even their rich Gulf friends who want to help President Sisi find it difficult, especially with low oil prices, to subsidize it in the way that is necessary. So in some ways, it's analogous to Saudi Arabia in the sense that you have an authoritarian leader who is trying to consolidate power and modernize the country and reform the economy, but without some of the advantages of Saudi Arabia, like you know, immense wealth to, to start with. And that's the challenge that Sisi faces. I think he is approaching the economy in the right way. And there was a recent IMF report that gave him pretty good marks on making the currency more flexible and cutting the budget deficit and reducing energy subsidies, all of which needs to be done for Egypt to succeed. But of course, those things are all problematic economically because you cut energy subsidies and people aren't happy. So I think on the economy, it's pointed in the right direction, but sometimes the Egyptians make it hard for themselves. So they also somehow need to tackle the question of, you know, whatever the number is, there are millions of Egyptians who don't feel legitimized in that society. And so long as Egyptian prisons are teeming with, you know, opposition of whatever stripe, they're going to be factories of extremism and make it hard for the country to get stable. Tourism has been gutted by terrorism and, and violence. Is a second Arab Spring there possible? 
I think you'd be crazy to exclude it. I mean, you know how hard this is; these things are to predict. But yeah, I mean, I think Sisi taking power back was largely popular throughout the country. You can never estimate it. I think sometimes people overstate, you know, that and imply it was a consensus. But there were a lot of supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, the previous government, that felt that this was an illegitimate coup, and a lot of those people are in jail. And if he can't find a way to satisfy the uh, aspirations of this burgeoning youth population, they're going to be frustrated. You know, we saw that in our time where, so first it was Mubarak that the people were fed up with and finally wanted to get rid of. And then the the SCAF, Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, came in for a time, and then they became quickly unpopular. And then Morsi came in, and he quickly became unpopular. And Sisi, you know, what makes you think, what makes anyone think that it's going to be easier for him to keep that same population satisfied? But what I started to say is, just as we have a stake in Saudi Arabia, we have a stake in helping Egypt, but the Egyptians, Sisi, sometimes make it hard for themselves. And, you know, some of what they're doing on restricting... Hard in in, in what uh, sense? Hard for... uh, Hard for us to help. Hard domestically. There is extensive corruption throughout the country. I think the armed forces are an obstacle to some of the economic reform that CC might They're otherwise. deeply embedded in the economy. They're deeply embedded in the economy, and they don't want the change that is necessary to, to feed these you know, 95 million people. And then on top of that, you have issues with the United States, like you know, ongoing cooperation with North Korea and the arrest of American citizens, which makes it hard for the United States to support them, even though there's great you know, goodwill to do so. So let's shift to the second issue, extremism. Let me ask you an easy question. What's your view of the fundamental sources and causes of extremism in the region? You're right. Um, easy, easy question. Easy question. I think we've learned enough to know by now that there isn't one answer to that question. You know, there have been all these attempts to figure out what it is. You know, is it the absence of opportunity or the Palestinian issue or, or repression? And I think having studied this over the years, you know, we collectively have come to the realization, or at least should, that it's not a single factor, and it's some amalgam of these different causes. And you know the recipe includes the things that I mentioned, and it includes, in many cases, sort of personal alienation, a strong psychological. You know, what makes someone be willing to kill another human being? It has to be something. It's hard for many of us to fathom. So psychologically, it's something where this very deep and profound alienation, humiliation. That's why I think we see a lot of second generation immigrants, especially in Europe, where they're not assimilated, get frustrated to the point that they're actually willing to kill and look for a meaning in life because they don't have it. So some combination of that alienation, opportunity, the geopolitical challenges and frustrations leads to anger such that that they turn to extremism. So what's the role of religion in this, do you think? There's a big debate about that uh, among scholars of this and, you know, between those who think that it's a bunch of other factors and then religion is the sort of convenient thing to take you across the finish line and others see it the, the, uh, the opposite way, that it's religion that gets pulled across the line by other things, geopolitical criminality. I think that religion becomes the crutch. Religion in and of itself is not the cause because there are an awful lot of religious people of every religion, including Islam, who are not terrorists. Including conservative Islam, including Wahhabis who uh, aren't terrorists. Uh, there are Mohammed hundreds Benayev, of Mohammed Benayev, one, of, one uh, of the great uh, counterterrorism fighters in the world, is, is, is a Wahhabi. Uh, exactly. So it is just simply not the case that it's you know religion or Islam and then they're, they're for terrorists. 
But, you know, at the same time, you can't deny that the mix of things, that sometimes a, a particular interpretation of religion can be used by people who, for I think the other reasons I described, are looking for some you know, justification for the acts that they're going to. Yeah, one of the things I learned is that for a lot of these young people who become terrorists, they're not well-schooled in Islam, right? And the leaders of these organizations take advantage of that and give them a certain spin on the religion, which is actually has no, no real relevance, right, in the religion, and they radicalize them that way. No, exactly. I mean, I think there it is clear that a lot of these religious schools are not taking the you know, best students who are genuinely reading into and learning about the history of their religion, but the opposite. And it's being used in... Is this a growing problem in the region? Is it getting smaller? Is it the same? How do you, how, how do you think about that? It is certainly an enduring problem, right? I mean, uh, it's not getting smaller. Obviously, we've made progress on the ground against ISIS and against al-Qaeda. But the sources, I don't think you can yet say, have been dried up. I mean, if I'm at all right that it's some combination of this you know, frustration, alienation, repression, lack of opportunity, all that's still there. And if you, know, if you want to zero in on a, on a core piece of it, especially if we're talking about extremist, radicalized, Sunni fundamentalists, which is most of what we see in terms of the ISIS attacks, right? A large piece of that seems to me to be the 20 or so million Sunni Muslims between Baghdad and Damascus who feel like they have no future. They're being given the short end of the stick. They have no stake in the future of their countries. That's right. They're being repressed in both directions, you know, in Syria by an Iran-backed Shia-affiliated government that's been bombing them relentlessly. And then in Iraq, especially under the previous Maliki government, a Shia-majority dominated Iran-backed regime that was not allowing them a fair place in society. And along with some of the other factors we've been talking about, that's a great recipe for, for susceptibility to that religious preaching that takes advantage of these frustrations, especially among uneducated people who are easy to rile up with this message that your people are being abused and it's up to you to go and fight for them. So if so many foreign fighters go into Syria just based on that notion. And so until I think, again, there's a lot of other factors involved, but a basic minimum, until those 20 million Sunnis in that geographical space can feel like they have a more more of a stake in a future and an opportunity and, and peace in their countries, I don't think this problem is going to go away. We, you know, we can fight it on the ground and we can kill terrorists, but they're always going to be more until some of these right. causes are dealt. Right. As fast as we took them off the battlefield, they were coming onto the battlefield, even faster. Too many out there. The dispute between Saudi Arabia and the Emirates on the one hand and Qatar on the other, I, I wanted to throw in here because some people see it as a difference in view on the role of political Islam in society. Some people see it differently. How do you see it? Uh, it is definitely a, a difference in view about political Islam. I mean, at its core, that's what this dispute is about. It's, it's about, in some ways, what brand of Islam is going to lead the, the, the Sunni Muslim world. You know, in the wake of the secular dictatorships that disappeared in the Arab Spring, that question became much more open, right? I mean, it's always been out there, but it was an open question because you didn't know who was going to govern. And now was, an opportunity for change. Right? Uh, yeah. And I mean, one reason that has led to so much conflict, including the sectarian conflict with Iran, which we'll probably get to, is those countries and that leadership was, quote unquote, up for grabs. 
It was no longer in the hands of an obvious answer, whether you liked that answer or not. And there were all sorts of problems associated with that answer, but it was answered. And then suddenly you have this openness. And I think more than anything, the, the dispute that you raised between Saudi Arabia and UAE on one hand and Qatar on the other was a different bet on which, which version of political Islam was the future. And the Qataris a number of years ago made a bet that political Islam, Islamism, Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas type of thinking was going to be dominant in the region and they should get on side with it. And especially as you saw the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, even taking power in Egypt and I mentioned Hamas and Tunisia, I think their assessment was they should have good relations with these people. Whereas the Saudis, and particularly the Emiratis, saw that as the main threat to their legitimacy. This sort of pan-Islamic group that wants to say, no, the monarchies that are in charge of those countries, that's not the way our space should be governed. It should be a pan-Islamic you know, Muslim Brotherhood. So that's pretty fundamental. And that's why it got so serious, because this is about the, the stability and legitimacy of Do of we have a stake in this debate, one way or the other? I think we have a stake in avoiding the the battle for... Uh, but do we have a stake in one one view or another, do you think? An interest, I guess. In, an in, interest. In, you know, sort of in, in taking sides. Yeah. Um, I don't think we, just maybe put it in the negative terms, I don't think our interests align with the predominance of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, view, right? That if somehow Brotherhood and Hamas with their pan-Islamic, anti-American vision, religiosity predominating takes hold. I don't think that should be our vision for uh, the region. How to weigh into that debate, I mean, first of all, I think we should be very humble and cautious about thinking that it's up to us what sort of future Muslims in the Middle East uh, want for themselves. But we can have a view, which is that that wouldn't really serve our interests. But then once you have a view, you have to have a policy and you can legitimately ask the question whether you know, all-out repression of that view is the best way to handle it or whether that can't you know, lead it to metastasize and turn into some other... Do you see this, this dispute between Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and, and Qatar being resolved anytime soon? And no. Are, and, uh, and are there downsides to the dispute? There are big downsides to the dispute. And I think the broad feeling in Washington among people I talk to, including the administration, is... You know, we have enough problems in this region. Do we need our allies to be going at it, uh, you know, against each other? We have deep military cooperation with Qatar, an important air base there. And now it's being, you know, uh, boycotted by some of our other key partners. We have an interest in, in avoiding the escalation of this dispute, which could actually get worse. But I'm afraid I don't see a near-term solution because of, I already described how deep-seated the differences are. How fundamental it is. They're fundamental. And it's not just a fundamentally different view of what kind of Islam, but it's also a fundamentally different view of like who leads in the region. You know, these are all proud families, countries, and there's a a strong element of that just for the sake of it. The Qataris don't want to bow to the Saudis. But on top of all that, just in terms of assessing it, handicapping whether it's likely to end soon, neither side is really suffering from the situation to the point that they're going to give in, right? So, you know, it's hurting Qatar to be isolated diplomatically and economically a bit, but they've got plenty of cash and they're proud and their emir is probably more popular now than he was. Does it give the Iranians or the Turks an opening? It absolutely does. And I think that's the policy question for our friends in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. 
which is, you know, let's say you're right, that, that they're, they're supporting some nasty groups and we should really be clear with them that that needs to stop. And, you know, the Al Jazeera broadcasts and question legitimacy, I think we can sort of take their side on that, even as we sometimes need Qatar to talk to those groups. And, you know, we found that useful in the past when we did have to talk to, whether it's the Taliban or Hamas in some way. So I think it does give the Iranian Turks uh, an opening because Qatar, uh, even though it was uh, in some ways ties to Iran and Turkey that led to the boycott by Saudi Arabia, the Emirates and others, but because Qatar is defiant and because it is rich, it's actually doubled down on military exercises with Turkey and it sent its ambassador back to Iran. And so that's the point, you know, when we discuss it with the Saudis and Emiratis, even if we want to grant that they have a point and that a lot of Qatar's behavior needs to stop and we should all press it to do so, you know, you also have to ask about the consequences of your policies. And if the end result of that political approach is Qatar doubling down with Turkey and a rapprochement with Iran, then it's going to bring the opposite uh, of what we sought in the first place. So let's move to ISIS. And we've touched about on this a little bit because we talked about the politics of the Sunnis in, in Iraq and Syria, but caliphate's almost gone. So mm-hmm. militarily, the policy that President Obama put in place and, and arguably President Trump accelerated a bit is working. Five to 10 percent of the caliphate left. It's going to go away. That doesn't necessarily mean ISIS goes away, right? What's the future of ISIS in Iraq and Syria and the region going forward here? Right. So I do think this is one where both administrations can take some credit. And there's been more policy continuity on this than I think many would acknowledge. Um, Once it was clear how great the ISIS threat was, and they took Mosul and parts of Syria, I think President Obama laid out a strategy, a multi-pronged strategy that he said would take around three years to implement of, you know, cutting off their finances, going after them militarily, stabilizing the governments of Iraq, government of Iraq. And that's pretty much the track we've been on. And President Trump came in and more or less pursued that same strategy, not surprisingly, with a lot of the same intelligence and military officers. Uh, who were involved. And now uh, it turns out that about three years in, we've made all the progress that you uh, describe. But we obviously can't be complacent if uh, the causes that led ISIS to emerge in the first place are still there, then this is to a degree whack-a-mole. This is a necessary condition, but not sufficient. It's certainly not sufficient. So so there's got to be a political settlement, right, in both places that do what you said earlier, which is give these Sunnis a stake in the future of their country. Can you imagine such a political settlement in Iraq and Syria? Settlement might be overstating it. Again, you know, we always have to be honest and realistic about these things. Sort of settlement that does away with the problem is not going to happen soon. Already there's been progress, I mean, in both places. Uh, In Iraq, it was more than anything the sectarian policies of the Maliki government that led so many Sunnis to almost be sympathetic to ISIS. They were so fed up with Iraqi security forces in Mosul that they were almost welcoming to ISIS if it was going to take on uh, the corrupt sectarian Baghdad regime. So that's changed now. And I think Prime Minister Abadi has a different approach. And he's struggling to implement you know, everything he would like to, but he's cleaned up the security services to a large degree. He's acting more like an Iraqi than on behalf of Iran. He's even had a sort of rapprochement to a degree with Saudi Arabia. So the politics are better in Iraq, far from perfect, but we've made progress. And similarly, similarly in Syria, even though we didn't manage to bring about the political transition that really would have helped deal with this problem, right? Getting rid of Assad, who was a main cause through his violence against his population and largely Sunni population, the de-escalation of the conflict itself will help 
if you don't have the daily barrel bombing of these poor uh, civilians that people are watching across the Middle East and Europe, that helps to a degree as well. So I think the fuel that was fa that was burning and producing ISIS in 2014-15 has been burned off a bit, but we're a long way from what you might call a, a genuine settlement. What's your assessment, Phil, of the joint statement between the U.S. and the Russians in the last few days about the future of politics in Syria? I've seen too many joint U.S.-Russian attempts to cooperate in Syria to be too optimistic about the latest ones, uh, which is to say, you know, we invested heavily from the early days. I was working at the State Department with Secretary Clinton when this first emerged, and we had countless meetings with Foreign Minister Lavrov about coming together for a transition in Syria, including the, the summer of 2012, the Geneva communique for a, a transition. But it was quickly clear that the Russians just had a different vision of Syria's future than we did. And we often, I think, to be honest, looking back, we we misunderstood the Russians, maybe willfully, when they would say, you know, we're not Assad's backer. We have no reason to back him. We don't, we don't care about him personally. We would get hopeful that they would be willing to work with us and get rid of him. But we didn't, didn't listen carefully enough to the rest of the sentence, which was, but it's not up to us who governs Syria, and you guys don't have a plan to replace him. And the last thing we're going to do is abet a process that is regime change and brings about a bunch of extremists in Somalia and Afghanistan. And it's the last, the latter part that they meant a lot more than the former part. And so, and they we, had a lot of good evidence on their side, actually. Oh yeah, no, the, so part of that wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's yeah. the thing is, you know, we can quibble with their just blanket aversion to regime change as a matter of principle and say, well, that's wrong. They shouldn't. But that we didn't have a realistic way to impose a moderate pro-Western government, which would have been bad enough for them if it if it were those things. Uh, and so they weren't wrong that, and especially after the years went by and the war got worse, I mean, I, I started to conclude, I didn't know who would replace Assad if he eventually fell, but it wasn't going to be the the moderate, secular friends. The longer the it went on, State. too. The, longer, was, the probability of that went down. Yeah. That was the thing that wasn't going to happen. So, but the, the point about the Russians is, you know, we've tried then and subsequently to come up with some modus vivendi and work with them, and we've yet to find them willing to do anything to assist that process. So we've done governance, which is hard. We've done extremism, which is hard. The Iran-Saudi dynamic. Yeah. What are the Iranian goals in the region? What are they after? Well, I think it starts with fundamental insecurity. The Iranians feel outnumbered in the region and surrounded by hostile states. And if you think about it, they have actually, you know, their neighbors to the east and west have been invaded in recent years, including by us. There was a time when there were U.S. troops on both sides right. of their border. And so their vision of protecting their interests starts with, you know, controlling more space and, and strategic depth so that they're not surrounded and outnumbered by, by hostile powers. But I think it's more than that. I think they have an ideological agenda to spread their ideological and sectarian, as well as geopolitical, to spread their either their uh, sectarian thinking or their version of of Islam, or at a minimum, their friends and proxies. And that's what their strategy consists. And this of. is what people refer to as revolutionary Iran. Yeah, and it's still to a degree. You know, it's not revolutionary in that you know they are on a. Uh, hell-bent for leather campaign to overthrow all of the governments in the regions. They don't have the resources to do that. But they are, to the extent they can, trying to weaken their neighbors. Again, using proxies who are quite 
effective and ruthless and loyal to Tehran. It's one of the things about this proxy battle going on is the Sunni proxies almost can't even be called proxies, right? They're anti-Iranian, but they're mostly out for themselves. They don't even like the regimes that sponsor them in the in the Sunni world and sometimes even want to overthrow them too. Yeah, I think about the Iranians having proxies and actually the Saudis and Emiratis not having. Any, That's a, right? You're right. Your, your way of putting yeah, it is more, yeah. you know, just bluntly accurate yeah. about it because the Iranian proxies are proxies. They're at, acting with money and arms and at the behest of Tehran. So the Saudi and Emirati pushback, yeah. it's significant and it's come out of the last several years, right? What's going on there? I think the Saudis and Emiratis and others, but mainly the Saudis and Emiratis, feel like Iran is on the march. You know, this is an old problem, right? It's gone on for centuries, and the sectarian piece of it has gone on for more than a century and is is hardly new. And it ebbs and flows over the years and decades, right? But it's surging now. We mentioned the importance of the Arab Spring, and I use that expression, you know, countries being up for grabs. What the Saudis and Emiratis see now is a vacuum that Iran is trying to fill. Again, when those countries were governed, you know, with all the problems of those dictators, Saddam Hussein, Saleh in, in Yemen, the space was filled. And Iran didn't have any, you know, nooks and crannies to get in there. Then you get rid of that, the dictators and the institutions, and it really is up for grabs. Syria, obviously, as well. Once the war starts, who's going to control it? The friends of the Sunni regimes or the friends of the Iranians? So when you have that space to be filled, you know, a vacuum, nature pours a vacuum, both sides are rushing in, and that leads to conflict. And and in that conflict, where states that were, for the most part, ruled by uh, Sunni leaders, sometimes more, at least not aligned with Iran, whether they're aligned with Saudis or, or not, in that conflict, the Saudis and Emiratis and many other Sunnis in the region perceive that Iran is getting the upper hand. And, you know, you hear when you travel to the region, as I know you do, this narrative about the four Arab capitals, right? Uh, Baghdad, Damascus, um, Sana'a, and uh, Beirut in the hands of the Iranians. And you know, we see this flare up in Lebanon now. It's even more stark. So the perception in the Gulf countries, the Gulf Arab countries, is that Iran is on the march and someone needs to do something about it. And then on top of that, you know, you get the U.S. nuclear deal with Iran which frees up more Iranian assets that they see being used to continue to spread Iranian influence. And so they've been obsessed with this, this process whereby Iran is on the march and they fear... You, you have know, a young, aggressive leader in Saudi Arabia who's willing to take action. And that's what's different too. I think you know, previous cautious Saudi leaders didn't like this and they pushed us to do more. They were disappointed with the Obama administration for not doing more. But now you have a leader in Saudi Arabia who has demonstrated that he is a man of action and he's not going to sit around and, you know, say, pretty please, can you guys help us with the Iranians? Uh, he went into Yemen more than anything to deal with the Iranian challenge. He launched the boycott of Qatar as much as anything uh, because of its ties with Iran. And now he's he's ramping it up on Lebanon for the, the same reason. So that that's the difference is there. They and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia are clear, clearly saying enough is enough. So is this a good thing for us or not? How do you think about that in terms of U.S. interests? Well, I think we share the interest of containing Iranian expansion. We don't have an interest in a state sponsor of terror using proxies to undermine stability in Bahrain and Lebanon and Syria and Yemen or even in Saudi Arabia. So definitely containing Iran is an American interest. 
and we should work with our friends in the region, our Gulf Arab friends and Israel and others to do that. At the same time, that's what makes the Middle East so difficult, our interest is to do that without getting bogged down into proxy wars throughout the region. And that, you know, that's where this, the, the policy stuff gets hard. The bumper sticker that you hear a lot of, you know, contain Iran or roll back Iranian influence, that's easy. I mean, raise your hand if you're for that. Pretty much everyone is on board for that. It gets hard. And again, you know, you evoke our situation room meetings and there's nothing like actually having to decide a policy with American personnel and resources involved before you go from, oh, we should, you know, stand up to Iran to are you going to authorize special forces to Syria to fight Iranians, knowing that they're going to fight back and then they might try to kill your troops in Iraq? And that's what I worry about, you know, the drumbeat of stand up to Iran, where it can lead. I, you know, it is perfectly legitimate to say we need to do more to stand up to Iran and if necessary, sacrifice blood and treasure to do so. But please, let's do it knowing what we're getting into because there's not a cheap and easy way of doing this. Is there a risk of, of a hot war here between Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Iran that we get dragged into? Of course there is. And again, if we've learned nothing from the Middle East in recent years is that things can get worse. New things can happen. You know, every time you look, there's some other country that you know, loses its leadership or violence breaks out. I mean, look back at Syria. Could that have happened? So absolutely. And, you know, even look at the recent pattern. I mentioned the, the Saudi phrase, enough is enough, uh, a minute ago, as they described the you know, Iranian expansionism. So in Yemen, the Saudis said to us, you know, we tried to work together for years to first preserve the the existing government, the Hadi government, and then to reinstall it after the Houthis, backed by Iran, gained influence. Then the Saudis said, look, you know, you've got to stand up to Iran and the Houthis. You've got to do more. And we, we tried. And then at a certain point, they said, you know what? Enough is enough. We're going in. And they have been using military force for almost three years. In Qatar, they said, and have been saying for several years, look, we can't tolerate this. They're doing some nasty things. Al Jazeera and Muslim Brotherhood. And then last summer, it went from we can't tolerate this to we're taking action. You can't listen to last week's pronouncements about Lebanon and what they called an act of war when a missile was fired at Riyadh that they blamed on Iran and Hezbollah, and listen to them describe the Iranian threat and Hezbollah domination of Lebanon and the prime minister of Lebanon uh, remaining inside. You can't watch that and say, oh, you know, there's no risk of, of action being taken. There absolutely is. What do you think the logic is in Riyadh with regard to Prime Minister Hariri and pushing back there as opposed to someplace else? So there is clearly a space where I don't think anyone would contest that Iran is has major influence and is increasing that influence. And so I read that at a minimum of Saudi Arabia saying, we are not going to sit by and let a Sunni prime minister be the legitimizing face of a Hezbollah-Iran government. We were just not. I mean, that was the situation before. And we could all pretend that there was, a, you know, a prime minister and Hezbollah was, quote unquote, in the government. I think the Saudis were... were we're saying, no, Hezbollah is the government, and we're not going to play a charade of, of letting someone legitimize that. So that, that seems to me, at a minimum, the Saudi thinking when they pressured the prime minister to resign, apparently. The next question, though, if that's right, is... What's next? What's next? And again, if I'm right about the pattern, where in Yemen they say, which part of this didn't you understand? We're not going to tolerate Iran on our border. In Qatar, when they say, which part of this didn't you understand? The logic that flows from that on Lebanon is we told you we're not going to allow Iran to continue to spread its influence. Which part of that don't you understand? Yeah. But how do you stop that, right? What do you do next? I mean, they don't have a lot of tools. 
They don't have a lot of tools to directly intervene militarily in Lebanon, which is one you know, reason to doubt that that's sort of around the corner. They do clearly seem to be looking for allies in this campaign, and by raising it you know, in, a, in terms of raising awareness and, and hitting the drumbeat, you know, the Israelis have been uh, making the same point about uh, Iranian influence, a lot of people in, you know, in Washington and the U.S. as well. So I think part of their hope there is to bring a coalition along willing to stand up to Iran and at least deter Iran or Hezbollah from taking certain actions by showing a readiness to do so. So two big issues with Iran, right? One is regional regional behavior. The other is the nuclear issue, right? And their apparent desire to at least get close to the capability. You were involved in the nuclear deal, which constrained them on that front. President Obama saw it as a major achievement. There are two broad critiques to that. One is we didn't, we, the United States, didn't get enough containment for long enough. And then the other critique is, well, it didn't deal with all this regional misbehavior, right? How how do you think about those two critiques? Look, those are serious issues. And I would not pretend that this Iran nuclear deal is perfect and resolved every issue. And and there's no way to imagine a better one in any negotiation is a matter of give and take other than, you know, occupation after a war. My responses would be on the latter, you know, dealing with the regional questions. I think that an attempt to include Iran's regional behavior comprehensively in the nuclear deal would not have resulted in a nuclear deal and a constraint on Iran's regional behavior, but neither. Uh, It was hard enough. It took all of the economic and international pressure we could muster over a number of years to really squeeze the Iranian economy because there was a consensus that they couldn't get a nuclear weapon. And it was so hard to do. And we managed to extract the best deal we, we could to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. Imagine in the middle of that process or at the start of that process, the end of the process saying, all right, we got that, but now they have to pull out of Lebanon or stop developing ballistic missiles. Or, and then I don't even know how you define some of these things, right? Using proxies. So if some Iranian guns show up in Yemen, is the entire thing done and we give up on the nuclear deal too? So it's a, it's a good line, but when you actually think about it, to try to say Iran's behavior, foreign policy, and everything else has to come with the same package, I think would have led just to no deal. What and, about the longer time, a longer time frame in terms of constraining them? Right. Well, first of all, if you mean on the nuclear, yeah, yes, on yes, the nuclear piece, yes. Certain provisions of the deal obviously sunset in a certain number of years, 10, 15, 20, 25. But the commitment never to seek or develop or acquire a nuclear weapon is forever. The application of the additional protocol, the International Atomic Energy Agency's most intrusive regime for monitoring a system, is also forever. And the ban on weaponization activities, things you do to uh, not just develop the fissile material, but to be able to explode it, is also forever. So uh, I don't think it's accurate to say, people sometimes imply or say far too loosely, you know, they can get a bomb in 10 years or 15 years. That's just not true. And if they violate those other things that I mentioned, we can go back to square one and deal with that as necessary, uh, whether that's sanctions or military force or all the options that, you know, that we would have today. So look, would it be better if the deal banned Iran from any enrichment at all for 50 years or indefinitely? Sure. But you have to, again, But there wouldn't be to, a deal. If that, but there wouldn't be a deal, just like there wasn't a deal, you know, from 2000 to, to 2010. While we had sanctions on Iran and we were trying to deal with this, 
issue and they went from having no centrifuges to having thousands of centrifuges and a full uh, nuclear fuel process. So that's where the easiest thing in the world, and you've been involved in a lot of negotiations, is to say a, a better deal could have come out at the end, right? I can't think of a negotiation where if I wasn't involved in it, I wouldn't say, why didn't you just get that or that, you know? But remember, during those negotiations, they also had the option of walking away. And that was something we obviously had you know, to ask ourselves as we thought about pushing for a little bit more, which we obviously always did. You do have to take into account if you walk away, if you exercise your threat to walk away, then they resume the program. And right now, what are we in, you know, end of 2017? They would have, had we not taken the deal we had then, well, they already had 20,000 operating centrifuges. You know, what would they be up to now? 30,000, 40,000? They had 10 tons mm-hmm. of enriched uranium. What would they be up to now? 20 tons? They were finishing a heavy water reactor that could make enough plutonium for up to two bombs a year. That thing would be operational as we speak, difficult to bomb because of uh, a fallout, and they would be accumulating uh, plutonium. Maybe they would have started on a reprocessing facility. And then we'd be in 2017, 2018 saying, boy, wouldn't it have been nice if three years ago we could have got a deal to cap all that stuff and get rid of the heavy water reactor? So the president's unwillingness to certify the agreement to Congress, which is a, not part of the agreement with Iran, but part of what was imposed right by Congress, his decision not to do that, how much risk does it put this deal in? Uh, it puts the deal in very serious risk. And I say that notwithstanding the claims of some, including in the administration, who said when the president decertified, Everyone can rest easy now because he didn't tear it up, right? Because that's he could have just ended it. He went to the UN. He called it an embarrassment and the worst deal ever. And he could have then given a speech that said, we're walking away from it. Just like he said in the campaign, he would dismantle the, the he'd make a number one priority of dismantling the deal. He didn't do that. He only, quote unquote, decertified and said to Congress that he couldn't certify that, uh, that the sanctions relief was proportionate to what they uh, gave up. But the reason it is dangerous and threatens the deal is what he said when he decertified. Because what he said was, Congress and our allies need to, quote unquote, fix the fundamental flaws of the deal, or it will be terminated. And he enumerated the fundamental flaws, right? He didn't say, you know, tweak it a little bit. He said it needs to deal with ballistic missiles, and the sunset clauses need to be dealt with for these provisions that expire after a certain amount of time. And Iran's regional behavior well, again, I come back. If that all could have been gotten in the first place, it would be there already. And so I would argue that that was an impossibility at the time. And had we insisted on that at the time, we would have no deal in, in a more developed uranium nuclear program now. But whether you believe that or not, and we'll never know, now that the deal exists and almost every country in the world thinks it's working and the IEA has certified numerous times that it's working and the Security Council has endorsed it, now to imagine that we would get our allies, let alone Russia and China, let alone the Iranians, to come back and say, okay, new, new deal in town, you can extend the sunset clauses for another decade, is just not going to happen. So that's the risk with what the president set up. You know, in theory, it's a great idea. You say, look, if you don't fix this stuff, we're going to walk out. People get scared, they fix it, and you go away. But it was never going to be the case that the Europeans would go along with that plan. Certainly wasn't the case the Russians and Chinese would. And do you imagine the Supreme Leader saying, all right, you know, nation of Iran, we did this tough deal with the Americans. It was a bitter pill to swallow. President Trump now says... I sold it politically as a bitter pill to swallow. Right. right. 
But now, you know, President Trump says we got to give more, so we're going to give more. I'm afraid they would call our bluff and say, okay, you want to walk away from the deal? We'll resume the program and now deal with it as you see fit. So that's the risk. The short-term risk that Congress would actually reimpose the nuclear sanctions, because that's actually what decertification is supposed uh, to trigger. Yeah. yeah. That seems minimal because Congress doesn't want to own this either. And they're like, no, President, we're, we don't want you to pump It is interesting, us. right? It is interesting that, that a White House would willingly abandon policy to Congress or to your allies, right? Uh, it's usually it's, the other way around, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's we fascinating. Are in the executive branch, we complain about Congress trying to take the policy away. Right. Now it's like, you take it, you take it. But just to finish on that, Michael, so Congress is unlikely to act in the two-month period that decertification triggered. But we are not out of the woods. It doesn't mean this issue goes away. So nothing happens with decertification. Congress doesn't have to do anything. But by teeing it up the way the president did and saying, if Congress and our allies don't fix this deal, it will be terminated. Well, what's he going to do? Uh, on January 15th, he will have to waive sanctions right. again right. to keep this deal alive. Right. Be interesting to see how he plays that. Because he said if it wasn't fixed, he would terminate Two it. Two months away. Yeah. So, Phil, you've, um, we've taken a lot of your time, and I just want to ask one more question. There's an awful lot going on here in one place on the planet, right? Is there a, a U.S. approach to the region that you would advocate that's an umbrella, right, that would everything else would fit under? Or is this really piece by piece by piece that we have to put this together? I, I mean, I guess it's some of both. We do, I believe, have to be realistic and have a sense of humility about what we can accomplish. Uh, we've seen that you know, in recent years and, and years past. These are terrifically difficult problems, and it would be silly for me to sort of end this discussion by saying, you know, here's a bumper sticker, a headline of what we should do uh, in the Middle East. That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to have to come back with that uh, another time. And we, we've seen, I mean, you went through a list, and we probably only scratched the surface of the, the myriad issues, countries, and details. So there's no real bumper sticker. But to go back to where we started about our interests there, I think we do need to recognize that we have fundamental interests and that we, because it's in our interest to vote resources to protect those interests, we can and should continue to do so. Going back to the point we made a couple of times about things can always get worse, we have succeeded and need to continue to succeed in preventing nuclear proliferation. This discussion of the Iran de nuclear deal is fundamental. It could get worse. So I think that needs to be a core part of the strategy. I think we can and should and have prevented the emergence of a terrorist safe haven from which attacks could be plotted against the United States. That's the anti-ISIS campaign was about. And I think it was worth investing in to accomplish that. We can and should and have prevented regional war. You know, again, in the category of it could get worse, there are terrible conflicts going on. There hasn't been an invasion of another country for a while. Uh, you know, when there was, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, we mobilized and we, we stopped it and I think sent a message that you can't just invade your neighbors. Without that, you know, imagine we right. took our troops and just said, you know, the region can do what it wants. So that's a, another core principle. And you know, that doesn't solve all of the problems that we're talking about, but it protects at least our core interests. So that would be my... Bumper sticker, if there is one, is, is protect our core national interests there. Phil, thank you for being with us. It was, it was great to have you. Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. That was Phil Gordon. I'm Michael Morell, and this was Intelligence Matters. Thanks for listening, and please join us next time. 
and check out the Cipher Brief online. It's the best daily source of national security analysis that I know of outside of the intelligence community. Happy Thanksgiving. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.